The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. I was speaking with an Arab Christian friend who expressed deep concern about growing tension in Israel. I replied that Jesus will solve everything by bringing peace when he returns. But my friend's reply revealed a gap in his understanding of eschatology due to a lack of teaching in his mini's church. He said, what good would it do for Jesus to return because the Jews will only argue with him again? I said, don't you know when the Lord returns in glory, nobody is going to argue with him? He's not coming back this time as the gentle Lamb of God, but as the Lion of Judah. This time there'll be no arguments because scripture says he'll rule with a rod of iron. The nations will obey him and there will be peace for a thousand years. But sadly, my Arab friend just had a hard time comprehending what I was saying because he and so many others in churches worldwide haven't been taught the biblical concept of the second coming as described in Matthew 24, 30 and the book of Revelation, the fact that Jesus is returning with power and great glory. Shalom, I'm Christine Dark. Those familiar with the Bible aren't surprised at the state of our world. The prophet Isaiah predicted that before the return of Messiah, increasing darkness will cover the face of the earth, but God's glory will arise upon the Jewish people and the Middle East. The annual prayer breakfast in Jerusalem was an inkling of that glory. Once again, the Jerusalem prayer breakfast was sponsored by members of the Israeli Knesset. Think of how amazing it is when members of the Israeli parliament reach out to Christians and invite us to come up to Jerusalem to pray. This year, some of the Israelis who participated were the Speaker of the Knesset and former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Jerusalem's Deputy Mayor, and various parliamentarians such as Gila Gamliel and Tatiana Mazarski, our hostess this year. Actually, the prayer breakfast has morphed into a three-day gathering of beautiful, unprecedented prayers between Jews and Christians. And Isaiah 60 was preached by one of the local believers at the three-day gathering at the Knesset and Waldorf Astoria Hotel. Isaiah 60 begins gloriously, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. That's the promise of Isaiah's prophecy that God will shine his glory specifically on the Jewish people. Although many church leaders have erroneously applied that verse exclusively to the church. But Isaiah 60 quickly goes on, For behold, darkness will cover the earth and gross darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Let's understand that in the immediate context, Isaiah was prophesying about Zion and the Jewish people. When gross darkness covers the nations, as is happening now, God promises to shine his spotlight on the Jewish nation again and bring them to life and salvation. 
just as the New Testament in Romans 11 teach. Hallelujah. Indeed, we're witnessing unprecedented and unbridled evil, while at the same time, Bible prophecy is unfolding exponentially right in the midst of the land of Israel. But as I remarked in the opening of the program, many Christians' concept of the second coming is very weak. When Jesus comes again, he's not coming as a mere man with whom the Jewish people will enter into disputes. No, he's coming as the conquering son of David and lion of the tribe of Judah. Events in the Middle East point to the need for believers to know the scriptures and to be ready for the rapture instead of going along with the world's opinions and agenda. There are so many misconceptions that should be corrected concerning eschatology, that's the study of end time events, by studying this word of God. But I'm not really surprised that people's perceptions of Bible prophecy are distorted. This is because a new report from the Arizona Christian University found that a staggering 62% of pastors in pulpits all across the USA do not hold a biblical worldview. Instead, the majority of pastors have developed a worldview called syncretism, meaning a mixture of various beliefs together with Christianity. Their worldview is a blending of personal preferences. According to the study, think of the implications. More than six out of ten pastors don't have a true biblical mindset. Rather than revolving their thinking around God's word, the majority of pastors are basing their beliefs on culture and so forth. Dangerously, many church leaders have set themselves up as an authority over God himself and this word. The Arizona study asked the pastors a series of 54 questions and discovered that among senior pastors, only 41% hold a biblical worldview, while among youth pastors, the number was a staggering 12% advocating a biblical worldview. Well, truth demands a commitment to God's word. It's not a pick-and-choose cafeteria or buffet of choices. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul declared to his protege, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly handling this word of truth. But so many pastors don't even address the prophetic nature of our times. Now think about this. According to research I've discovered, a person's worldview primarily develops before the age of 13. Then their worldview goes through a period of refinement in their teens and 20s. So from a worldview perspective, a church's youth pastor can be extremely influential. This helps to explain why so few young people are developing a heart and mind for biblical principles. But this trend is part and parcel of the apostasy prophesied for the last days. As the founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, once prophesied, the chief dangers of the faith will be religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and preaching heaven without mentioning hell. Thank God that when the Lord returns and rules this world during the millennium, 
the word of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem and proper knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth. There will be a return to the authority of God's word. Hallelujah. Also concerning eschatology, we have to understand that the Jewish concept of Messiah is different from Christian eschatology. The Jews don't think of Messiah the same way we do. Of course, Jesus is our model, but the Pharisees of Jesus' day saw Messiah as a political figure, like a great warrior hero from the pages of the Hebrew Bible. Even today, the Jewish people are still expecting Messiah at any moment. But in the scriptures, there are two contrasting portraits of Messiah, known as Messiah, the son of Joseph, and Messiah, the son of David. Is it possible that the humble portrayal of the Messiah riding a donkey as Messiah, son of Joseph in Zechariah 9.9, and the one coming in great triumph on the clouds, Messiah ben David, could be one and the same person? Could it be that one Messiah would come twice, first humbly to atone for sins as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and secondly with great triumph as Messiah ben David to restore the kingdom to Israel. The evangelical view is that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies concerning the suffering Messiah and he will finish fulfilling messianic prophecies concerning Moshiach ben David at his second coming. Well, what do the rabbis in Israel believe today? I asked, and one of my Orthodox Jewish friends explained that today, the Jewish concept of Messiah is still twofold. But apparently, the first stage of Messiah ben Joseph is no longer considered to be a person, but rather a process, which includes the ingathering of the Jews, the blossoming of the desert, and at least the beginning of the construction of the third temple in Jerusalem. This process was described in the 18th century by a sage known as the Vilna Goen. Furthermore, Rabbi Avraham Cook, the first Ashkenazi chief rabbi of British Mandatory Palestine, taught the idea of secular Zionism as being a substitute for Messiah ben Joseph. Many rabbis believe that current events are well into that first phase. So now the second phase, according to the rabbis, will be the soon coming of Messiah from the house of David. He is believed to be an individual who will usher in a miraculous period for Israel, and the rabbis believe he will reinstate the Davidic dynasty. My Orthodox Jewish friend said that identifying this specific person is the tricky part. But the fact that the Jewish people today are looking for Messiah to restore the Davidic dynasty is a definite sign of the times. Some rabbis believe that the revelation of Messiah ben David is so close that they shouldn't leave Israel for fear that they'll somehow miss his arrival. Well, I often speak in churches with Acts 1.6 as my text. This was when the disciples put the question to Jesus after his resurrection. They asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That was the foremost question on the disciples' minds. They just assumed Jesus would restore the Davidic kingdom then. But Jesus surprised them by saying that first they must take the gospel light to all the nations. Thus, the church age has stretched to nearly 2,000 years. 
However, the pertinent question of Acts 1-6 still remains to be addressed, and I believe at his second coming, Jesus will restore the kingdom to Israel at this time as Messiah, the son of David. At his first coming, Jesus fulfilled the portrait of Messiah, the son of Joseph, the suffering servant and redeemer described in Isaiah 53. But at his second coming, he will be the kingly ruler who will sit by the throne of David in Jerusalem. There still remains to be fulfilled the prophecy of the angel Gabriel to Mary, the mother of Jesus, in Luke 1.32. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Therefore, the fact that Jews are waiting for Messiah to restore the Davidic dynasty is very helpful to understanding the times and realizing how close we are, in fact, to the rapture in the second coming. At this point in time, the Jewish people do not know about the imposter known as anti-Messiah or the prophesied antichrist and how he will betray them. This has been hidden from their eyes. The New Testament teaches that the Jews will receive a man that they believe to be messianic, but he will turn out to be the arch deceiver who will defile the holy place. The Jews will reject him when he shows his true colors, so we mustn't blame them for what is going to happen. It will be a deception, but the Jewish people will eventually realize and thankfully reject anti-Messiah. Their disillusioned eyes will be open to the truth that Jesus was the Messiah all along. And they will summons him with Baruch HaBabe Shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So all this Jewish talk of Messiah's arrival and of building the third temple is extremely prophetic, even if the Jewish people will fall into a temporary trap of deception. Jews and prophecy watchers among Christians have been talking about the third temple ever since 1948, the birth of the new state of Israel, and especially since the 1967 war when Israeli troops stood on the Temple Mount and announced with great emotion, the Temple Mount is in our hands. The way has certainly been cleared for the prophecies to be fulfilled in Daniel chapter 9. But we want to encourage the Jewish people that the time of redemption is indeed very near but we would be remiss as responsible watchmen if we did not warn the Israelis that anti-Messiah will first come to make a last-ditch effort in some sort of peace treaty to rule the world from Jerusalem. When all of this happens, Israel will know that our warnings were legitimate. Meanwhile, prophecy is being fulfilled very swiftly in our day, and surprisingly, President Trump was used by God as a catalyst. It's fascinating that in God's sovereignty over American presidential elections in 2016, along came Donald Trump and he dared to do what other American presidents promised but failed to do. And that was to move the American embassy to Jerusalem, recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And at the time, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu agreed with many rabbis in Israel that Donald Trump was playing a prophetic role, whether he realized it or not, in the ongoing end-time process. The rabbis openly declared Trump to be some sort of Cyrus figure. And why? 
because Cyrus was the ancient Persian king who facilitated the Jews' return to Zion. And he was referred to in Isaiah chapter 45 as an anointed one. He was the only non-Jewish figure in the Bible to be revered in this capacity to be called a Messiah figure. Well, the rabbis of the nascent Sanhedrin let Trump know that he won the election against all odds so that he would be like a second Cyrus to facilitate the building of the third temple. And they presented a medal, a coin to President Trump, showing him an ancient Cyrus and the third temple. And a brochure with the coin said President Trump is advancing a prophetic process that will usher in the rebuilding of the third temple. The mystical rabbis are also fascinated with numbers, and they pointed out that Trump was the 45th president, and that, of course, Isaiah 45 references Cyrus the king. So they saw Trump as a forerunner, paving the way for the messianic age and restoration of the Davidic dynasty. But prophecy watchers must know that Jesus warned the Jews that they will have to flee to safety when they witness an abomination spoken of by the prophet Daniel that will desecrate the holy place. And also the Apostle Paul went so far as to prophesy in 2 Thessalonians 2.4 that the Antichrist will set himself up in the temple complex, proclaiming himself to be God. All of this is potentially politically explosive, but the word Paul used for temple could be translated either as temple or holy place. And the Jews know the location of the Holy of Holies. And it's not where the Golden Dome stands, nor the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So those Islamic structures shouldn't be considered obstacles. Rather, Bible prophecy could be fulfilled quickly, even without a temple building, by the Antichrist simply setting up an abomination on the edge of the general area of the holy place on the Temple Mount. And so that's how close we are to end-time events culminating. Meanwhile, there's a lot of speculation that the ancient Ark of the Covenant that once occupied the Holy of Holies is hidden underneath the Temple Mount, and its discovery or disclosure would be breaking news and would certainly promote the building of a third temple, because there's no way such a sacred object would be put into a mere museum. Its only destination would be in a newly constructed Jewish temple or in a quickly thrown up tabernacle. Reportedly, some of the mystical rabbis claim it's just a matter of waiting for the right moment to bring out the Ark of the Covenant. Meanwhile, whether they realize it or not in connection with the Antichrist, there are Christian leaders and many intercessory watchmen who are campaigning along with our Jewish brethren for the building of the third temple. And we have already reported that modern Jewish priests are rehearsing temple sacrifices. Now, the idea of the reinstitution of animal sacrifices disturbs a lot of evangelical believers, but these sacrifices are inevitable and they do not contradict the gospel. For example, I read a comment on Facebook that offering animals is obsolete because Jesus was crucified as the Lamb of God as our final sacrifice for sins. But as strange as it may seem to evangelicals, the full counsel of the Bible is needed on this subject, and we have to rightly handle this word of truth. The fact is, the Bible teaches that during the millennium, sacrifices will be 
instituted again as prophesied in the book of Ezekiel in chapters 43 to 46. Commentaries explain that these sacrifices will be memorials as a reminder of how Messiah, the Lamb of God, shed his blood for sinners. And why will memorials be necessary? Because the millennium will be a time of peace and Satan will be bound for a thousand years. So people during the millennium will need to be reminded of the object lesson that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Future animal sacrifices during the millennial kingdom will not take away sin because Jesus' blood has accomplished that atonement. But sacrifices will serve as reminders or memorials to Jesus, the Savior of the world, just as the Lord's Supper during this current church age is a reminder of the purpose of the Lord's sacrificial death. Although the thought of animal sacrifices during the millennial kingdom may sound distasteful or unnecessary to today's Christians, the sacrifices will be a fulfillment of God's prophecies, and they will serve as an act of worship to the Lord. So who are we to balk against the prophetic word of God in the book of Ezekiel? Does not this word of God come first for our individual opinions? Hebrews 10.3 explains that animal sacrifices were a reminder of sins, and during the millennium they apparently will again serve as reminders of the seriousness of sin. So let's not argue with the Word of God like so many pastors are doing, choosing their own personal preferences over the authority of God's Word. So how close are we to the reinstitution of the sacrificial system leading up to the time of rebuilding a third temple? We see many prophetic puzzle pieces falling into place. We actually see end-time scenarios locking into place that the Bible has predicted, plus all the commentary that's coming from the different mystical rabbis via sources such as Israel 365 News. Everything has been prepared and we are extremely close to the time of the rapture and the great tribulation when Antichrist will be revealed, but he will dominate the world only for a relatively short season. Socialism, despite its flaws as proven by history, is already being embraced in many quarters and socialism will be the type of system with which Antichrist will rule the world. Basically, everybody will be a ward of the state. The book of Revelation predicts that he will cause all, both small and great, rich and poor, to receive a mark on their forehead or their right hand, and there will be no buying or selling permitted without a person accepting his mark. So Antichrist is going to be the ultimate big brother. You'll own nothing and be happy is an ominous catchphrase that was included in a video by the Globalist World Economic Forum. You'll own nothing and be happy is a harbinger of miserable dystopian times coming in the future when the right to property will be abolished for the benefit of the few. That deceptive catchphrase, you'll own nothing and be happy, reminds me of the lie that was put over the gates of the Auschwitz concentration camp. Work sets you free. The gospel is an invitation a very gracious welcome to sinners. If someone truly turns to the Lord for forgiveness, they are forgiven. To all those who are willing to follow the Lord unconditionally, Jesus 
Yeshua invites us with open arms to come to him and he promises never to reject us or leave us. The sages advise that we should live each day as if it were our last and to seek the Lord while he may be found. Call out to him while he is near. Yet I dare say the majority of folks dangerously drift day by day in a state of denial or hesitancy or uncertainty. The prophet asked in 1 Kings 18.21, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? Are we going to serve God or the world and the devil? As the Hebrew for Christians website put it so aptly, we must make up our minds and turn to the Lord. After all, is there anything more important than our relationship with God? As C.S. Lewis once wrote, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing it can't be is moderately important. Today, the scriptures urge, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading us to fall away from the living God. But let's encourage one another as we see the day approaching. The good news of the gospel is that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible promises we shall be saved. So rather than paying allegiance to the Antichrist and being branded with the mark of the beast, as a believer in Jesus, Yeshua, you'll be eternally marked in the sight of God by the precious atoning blood of Jesus. And you'll be sealed, protected by the power of the Holy Spirit. For the scripture says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And thankfully, there are no exceptions to this glorious promise. May God empower each one of us to embrace the Lord, to stay awake, to be ready for his return with hearts full of steadfast faith. I'm praying right now for every person within the sound of my voice to be saved while there is yet time. For how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Amen. Well, if you have any comments or questions, please share with me through social media or at our website, exploits.tv. Don't forget, download our free Jerusalem Channel app, that gives you access to all our videos. We also offer many articles and ebooks. Until our next time together, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Dark. Shalom and Maranatha. Mm -hmm.